0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode won the 2019 Giller Prize for his book Reproduction and his poetry has been shortlisted for the Griffin Prize. Here he is to introduce himself.
1: Hi, I'm Ian Williams. I'm a writer, author of six books. I write poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and I teach English at the University of Toronto after teaching at UBC for a while.
0: Ian's nonfiction book, Disorientation, Being Black in the World, was a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. In our conversation, Ian talks about the word disorientation and how it appears in the book. We also talk about the challenges of putting himself on the page in a nonfiction project. Ian starts our conversation with a reading from disorientation.
1: So I'm reading from the very first essay in the book, Uh, so right from the first page. It's called, More Than Half of Americans Can't Swim. My resolution this year is to learn how to swim. It was my resolution last year and the year before. And, well, let's stop there. I imagine myself falling out of a burning airplane into the ocean like an action hero. I crash into the water, conscious for a hopeful moment, before floundering and drowning. The scenario is illogical, but I have my reasons. I also have several reasons for why it is taking me so long to learn. 1. All the pools that I've entered have been unpleasantly cold, and I don't like the sensation of cold water on my body, especially my back. I don't like the sound of underwater in my ears. You can feel the current of conversations around race, particularly in America. You're entering an environment that has cast you as rebellious, violent, and troublemaking, if black, and as blameworthy, racist, and heartless, if white. None of this feels good washing over your head. Two, I haven't learned how to swim because of a story, internalized from childhood, that my aunt told me of a black boy in England who was struggling in a pool. He could have drowned, and the swimming instructor said, Leave him, N-word, don't float anyhow. I imagine the instructor turning away to deal with the white students while the black child splashed and gulped. You already have an internal story that makes you reluctant or fearful to approach the subject of race. If you're black, you expect any attempt to be met with pity or demands for proof. You've learned early that any mention of a white person in a racial situation that affects you is akin to an accusation. So you bear the microaggressions. If white, maybe you witnessed another white person get eviscerated for a joke or watching out for the welfare of the neighborhood. So you're just going to avoid black people. If you see one leaning against a car, you're not going to call the police. That's probably for the best. You're not going to say anything whatsoever about race because you're not stupid. Three, the thought of learning to swim among six-year-olds with water wings could be an amusing future anecdote, but I'd rather not endure the present awkwardness. I should know how to swim by now. So pride gets in the way. This type of pride is buoyed by shame rather than deflated by it. You should know more about race, but you're embarrassed to be counted among the ignorant, so you don't ask. Of course there are adult swimming classes. My racialized friend attended the first session of one where the entire class comprised three shirtless racialized men. It was like swimming for immigrants, he said. You don't want to be in the company of people like you. 4. Let's say I survive the classes and learn how to swim. Once the classes are over, where will I go swimming? Am I going to doggy paddle in some public pool with Olympians zooming and sharking around me? Who's eager to get into emotionally murky waters with people who've been swimming a long time? 5. I'm afraid of the deep end. I wouldn't mind staying in the shallow end where I could put my feet down. Maybe I just need to learn how to float. If the plane crashes and I survive the impact, I could float on the water until help comes. When I get tired, I'd hold on to buoyant pre like Kate Winslet in Titanic. You can keep your head above water with a few popular opinions. You don't need to look into the faces of slaves in photographs. You get it. Slavery, bad, equality, good. Respect black people. If you're black, you believe that your experience excuses you from understanding exactly what happened back then. You're black and that's enough. This one's tricky. Your experience is important, yes, but it's not everything. When you position yourself in history, you enter into a community of people with similar experiences and you observe how the racial climate changes over time. For white people, it's worth learning some history and theory and more. It's worth experiences of dis- it's worth having experiences of disorientation and discomfort as a means of empathy and as a way of accessing courage, which only grows from challenge and exercise. 6. I have a sensitive bladder. I am concerned that in in a moment of stress I might piss in the pool and get banned forever. For starters, don't piss in the pool. There are places for that. Don't contaminate discussions by trolling around and advocating on behalf of the devil. Not pissing in the pool is for your own good, too. There are internet forums full of piss. I doubt you want to swim in the putrid opinions of narrow-minded folks. If that's what you want, you probably shouldn't be swimming. You probably should find a community of kinky people and have them piss on you. I don't know where the scenario of my plunging into the ocean and needing to swim to safety came from. It is estimated that at least two million black people died while crossing the Atlantic Ocean on slave ships. Some jumped, choosing to drown rather than to be enslaved.
0: Thank you. My first question is an icebreaker question, and it is, if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why?
1: (laughs) It's not going to be a little life, I tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just finished recently. One book for the rest of my life over and over again. Um, so I I want to choose something that gives me comfort, but no, I'd probably just choose to read Power Politics, Margaret Atwood's book, Poetry (laughs) Collection over and over again. And that would probably explain why I'm alone in reading this book for the rest of my life, right? So it would take on some grand like spiritual significance, I think, (laughs) over time.
0: So I wanted to start with, I mean, it's the title of the book, Disorientation, but this mm-hmm. word appears over and over throughout the collection. And I wondered if you could speak to the title and that word. Um, And did it kind of naturally appear to the surface or was that? I know, I know in the acknowledgements, he mentioned that it was a hard book to edit. So I wondered if it was the work of a, a, a generous editor as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the disorientation was there right from the beginning it was in that moment like you know three four years ago where we were all kind of like reeling from like how quickly the world seemed to be deteriorating Um, and uh, microaggression is a term has been so popular to sort of handle the small scale kinds of violences that uh, people of color face and i think that puts so much emphasis on the act on the uh, on the interaction. And I was really interested in the effect afterwards, like what happens when you return to your car, you return to your uh, your apartment. And it's that feeling of just being slapped or of being like disoriented uh, and that kind of spinning reeling quality that it takes some time to recover from. And I wanted to sort of put that centrally, right? Not the interaction, not the damage um, in the immediate moment quite But the effect of it that it has on on people of color, yeah. And so the book sort of was built around that, and you can see like a number of instances of disorientation there. But it gives us just um, it gives us a wedge, right, to enter into the subject, and from there we can talk about everything. We talk about eyes and noses and mouths (laughs) in the book, so all sorts of things come up as a result of that.
0: And, and you also, of course, play with it in terms of the orientation of the words on the page. And I wondered if you could talk about that decision, because, I mean, that work, that's like a poet. I find that to be a poet sensibility, <laughs> right? It doesn't always mm-hmm. appear in a nonfiction book, but it's so effective.
1: Oh, for sure. So I think the temptation that... uh the the thing that we've come to expect of nonfiction is that the only thing that matters is the content, right? We approach it with this kind of like information extraction mentality. I'm going to go into this. I will get the point. I will get out of it and absorb it and move on. And, you know, that's really antithetical to my way of thinking as a, as a poet and as a writer, just generally. And I think there should be some actual pleasure in the experience of having your eyes pass over these words. And so as a poet, I'm always looking for ways to uh, animate or energize text uh, so people don't quite forget that they're reading. That's also an illusion that's been promised to us, right, that you should slip into a story so effortlessly and seamlessly that you forget uh you forget yourself you forget that you're reading you're so immersed right to be immersed in something and i think it's possible to be immersed and yet completely self-aware and self-conscious at the same time so i don't want like the text and the language uh to disappear i do want things to sparkle and dazzle i do want people to enjoy the surface of the water the light on it and not just be underground swimming with the whales nobody swims with whales eh? sharks Tropical fish, whatever. Dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> Dolphins. There we go. Um,
0: it, it's an interesting tool too because it it works in a sense of making the reader perhaps uncomfortable too, mm-hmm. um, which works so well with what you're addressing in the book mm-hmm. and. And I wonder if that's something you enjoy as a reader and if and how you approach that as a writer, because it a, it's a careful line to walk because you don't mm-hmm. want to make someone too uncomfortable and then they're like, sure. you know, put the book down.
1: Yeah, pleasure is the important adjective in there too. Yeah, but there should be this kind of disorienting effect in reading that particular chapter, right? That you're turning the page here and you're turning the page over there and you don't know when it's going to happen. And there was much more of it uh, in the earlier versions of it. But again, uh, my editor Anne Collins uh, had the line of thinking that you just uh, mentioned, which is maybe it's too much now, and it's it's getting too uncomfortable. And I sort of appreciate finding that balance, and maybe I tolerate a bit more discomfort <laughs> than the average reader would prefer, right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe years of reading theory and something in grad school does this to you. You're just willing to <laughs> to be like whipped across the back, like literally. So. Uh, but yeah, that balance is important.
0: Yeah. And it's
1: also important to sort of pull us out of that comfort zone of how reading works.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. It was interesting in reading the book because it felt so of the time and like you yeah. said it was you know 3 3 years ago or so and it, it deals mm-hmm. with those early days of the pandemic and mm-hmm. um you know the the protests and the outrage mm-hmm. that was so of the, of that time and and i wonder what it's like for you to go back to this book now uh you know do you feel how do you feel about that time that you t- described so well um and it was it's not a distant past it's only three years ago but it in a sense it feels far away
1: yeah how is it how's the book aging and how are we aging alongside of it yeah. yeah we've really entered a time warp with the pandemic right you say three years um yeah there could be a small toddler <laughs> born since since that time right the world could be radically different um but now i think the concerns there are still sort of of course, still like timely and still relevant. And I've kind of lost track exactly of the media narrative of race, right? I think there was a moment where it was highly visible and we were all like quite informed about uh, the tensions and uh, the constant battles. And now kind of like the war in Ukraine, right? Things have sort of receded, um and this is one of the one of the difficulties of moving forward because there are kind of structural impediments and yeah the internet's there yeah you can go on twitter you can find this out and find that out from alternate alternative media and what have you but um the fact that it's not constantly before us says to us that maybe our attention should be elsewhere right and then something else is presented to us right i don't know tom brady and giselle's marriage or something whatever is presented before us to kind of uh reorganize our priorities and i mean that vigilance i think is the real hard thing to fight right the real hard thing to maintain so yeah and nothing everything in the book still rings true and even as i was looking through for what i might read today it's like yeah 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 so it still 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 rings true for me there
0: yeah One of the the parts that really rang true to me was, I think it was actually, it might be in that first essay you were reading from, but um, you were speaking, I think the quote is humility is the best companion to ignorance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think the, and you were also just talking to the online discourse, I mean, we're in such an interesting place where it seems like there's less and less middle ground and everyone's kind of sitting on two ends of the spectrum. And and, yeah, I I wondered if you could, you know, talk about that and how you've been grappling with that in your work, but also like as someone who is publishing, it's people are discussing your work, but as I said, there's less and less middle ground. It's on both. It's, you know, right or wrong. No one's saying, Oh, maybe I, I need to learn more. Like, I, it's I we're not hearing that as much. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right. I think, yeah, generally in all of human history here, we haven't had a lot of, hey, I'm sorry. Hey, I should learn more. Man, was I wrong about that. Um, because I, I just think we're just not wired to, we're wired to self-protect both ourselves physically and also our, our ideas about ourselves. Um, and that's... <laughs> what do you do? And that's that's kind of almost biologically um, programmed. I mean, the best you can do is sort of uh, model the alternative, right? Uh, which is not to go around your life and the world apologizing for every small thing. I mean, that's not sensible either. But to actually, like, honestly, <laughs> when one is wrong, to, to say it, to say it, and, and to show that it doesn't destroy one completely right to be wrong or or what have you. I think yeah, this polarization really does concern me right the sort of the extremity of wrong of, of holding all of the right or holding all of the wrong right in, in in one body without realizing yeah there are shades and nuances and grays to this and parts of the things I'm saying are are almost there a little bit misinformed. And then there are areas that we just simply won't agree on, right? It's, it's not an, uh, it's not an issue of, uh, like moral rectitude or something. It's simply an issue of, uh, I disagree with how you see the world here. You know, I don't know what is right or what is wrong in this case, but I actually don't see the world that way. I don't see people as ill-intentioned or what have you. So. Yeah, I'm not sure, Megan, about the the polarization here. Yeah, and it seems to be getting worse until how far can the bell curve stretch into the margins, you know, before we're just off the page altogether, before we've got just these random universes just kind of colliding. I, I don't know, but we'll see it in the next 10, 20 years, right, the effects of this. Hmm. And then who's going to emerge in the center (laughs) with just really disastrous compromises um, that we'd be willing to take for the sake of peace at that point, you know, doesn't bode well. Some political science and sociologists probably cast some prophecies for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me it's like, a you know, the Internet is a great thing for many things, but it hasn't been a great thing necessarily for communication. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I think some there's there's something that happens when two people can sit down and and discuss like you. Yeah. It's easier to come to a middle ground if you can just mm-hmm. talk, but yeah. somehow on the Internet, it's it's not a conversation. You can't see yeah. someone's face. You can't, no. you know. I, I often think about that. What's been lost because we can't sit down and talk to mm. each other.
1: Yeah. And we haven't figured out exactly how to relate to each other virtually or digitally, right, without the face. So the the tech has sort of advanced beyond our our adaptation to it. And so it does require a new way of relating and it does require a new way of communicating. And we just don't know quite how to be. We thought the usual rules of etiquette and courtesy that we strive for in everyday conversations would suffice or would translate, um, onto Twitter. But no, there needs to be like some new etiquette or some new, um, new range of what's acceptable and what's not right. That still respects people. Mm -hmm. Like if that is the baseline and the bottom line. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You, I know you write poetry and, and fiction as well. And, and I wanted to ask about the the challenges of, of putting yourself right out there on the page. You know, you're not uh, hiding behind point of view or, or a mask as some people would use in poetry. Um, mm. What is that experience like for you?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, of course, right, to sort of be exposed and to disclose things that ordinarily uh, you would not share. Hmm. In my life, I am actually quite guarded, right? And quite, um, uh, reserved about disclosure and information. And so it's this really strange tension that, uh, for me, who operates so privately to be so public about, uh, on this subject. Yeah, that's, that's a strange, <laughs> a strange decision. I think what's going to be interesting to see is how the next book and the one after that responds to this, right? So if I've been working out some issues via a mask and via voice and persona in poetry and fiction, and now that I have the option of like being maskless, does this mean that the fiction will move towards like auto-fiction or something? No, I can answer that, right? But... Um, but like, what new openness or open fields will result now, right? And the other side of that is, and what new protective measures <laughs> will I put in place um, to keep, you know, my tiny soul <laughs> uh, shielded, right, from scrutiny? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm. I I wanted to uh, steal a question from someone I know that does a podcast, but she writes about cooking and food. And and she asks if cooking is a a political act. And I wondered (laughs) for you, is is writing a a political act? In this book, it it seems like it's that way, but is it often have kind of a political intention behind it or even a lowercase p political?
1: (laughs) Right. Interesting. Yeah. So early in the book, I say, like, I'm not a political person, right? Because that term is so uh loaded and it's dissolving now into kind of like meaninglessness right unfortunately um and i still like if i'm being honest it's it's not a it's not a uh it's not a favorable position to sort of hold and i still kind of feel uh that way about myself my priorities have not been political overtly in the way that um i think people want to have political conversations right um I don't want to have them that way, right? So bare and so, uh, yeah, yeah. I think the lighting of political conversations is just too harsh, right? And I don't, I don't want to sit under, you know, a bare light bulb in a basement. That's not what I want to do. Um, but there have been. I've been writing about race, and I've been writing about sort of um, thorny things right from book one, right in 2010. It's been there right from the beginning and my priorities have been aesthetic for the most part. And it's not entirely possible to separate the aesthetic from the political and, and, and all of that. Um, but I will say that I, I I just, my political aims and aspirations I want to do in my own way. And I don't want to be made to um, be a certain kind of figure or a certain kind of representative or to talk only about certain things and in certain ways. That's really like appalling to me, right? I, I just don't want to do that. And for me, writing is a space where I can be completely free. And I want to guard that freedom without being co opted to any other kind of project. So.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned uh, how this book will kind of inform what comes next that you write, but I wondered how what came before informed this book. Did you see yourself doing a book like this or was it something that surprised you?
1: Yeah. I I thought at some point in my life, it might happen, right? Maybe in my fifties or a little bit later on, because there's so many other things that I, I wanted to write and think about. Um, but it's never far from it, right? It's in reproduction, you know, right from the beginning. It's a, here's a black woman right at the beginning of reproduction, trying to live for life in opposition to a very privileged man. Um, it's in every single book. It's it's all over the place, and so yeah, it's been it's been rolling forward like a like a snowball down a hill into disorientation, and I think disorientation allowed me to sort of uh, take. A step out of the universe that I've been creating for a while and just speak directly. Right. And maybe that makes things a little bit simpler going forward. Right. There's no great code to crack or anything like here's what I think. Boom. Right. And now um, and now I want to write a poem. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In in the um, acknowledgments, you, you say that this was a hard book to edit. Can you mm-hmm. speak a, a bit to why that was the case?
1: Yeah, and I really enjoyed the editing process, right? So I'm at Random House uh, with Anne Collins, and um, she is just uh, a great, firm, insightful, gentle, tough kind of reader, right? And I think what was especially special about this process is that it was edited by a white woman, Right. So, I mean, demographically, we've got a black man writing a book. And in our present climate, I think people would call for, let's have a black person edit this book. Right. But the book purports to try to open up conversations. And the very first conversation, like beyond me internally, uh, was with my editor, right? About some of the things that are being said, some of the phrasing that whiteness chapter is. I can imagine for Anne, it's not an easy chapter to sort of read and edit, but she opened it, she approached it with the spirit of openness that I hope readers can sort of approach this work with too. And so for me, I'm really happy about that kind of process, right? The first thing, a black man and a white woman, let's work through this before it hits market and before it hits a readership and think and talk through what's what's happening here yeah
0: I have one more question for you and it is mm-hmm. did your furniture finally arrive <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, wow. it eventually made its way to me like <laughs> oh no what a nightmare that was right <laughs> what a nightmare uh, <laughs> yeah it's in there I've since moved from that place to another place but uh, with far less drama and far less less problems and all of that, yeah. But I mean, the the point of that too is like how race is just everywhere, right? You try to move, and you're like, okay, what's going on here? What's what's happening? Um, and how much like you know poverty or penury can I endure and and all of that? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and That's I mean, funny. it's it's such a great that piece was so great because you're you're dealing yes with with race and but it's funny like i i was when i read the review that i'm not sure if you sent or not but it was i, I laughed out loud because i just thought you know but i i think that speaks to like you just Raid. what else are you gonna do sometimes like you Raid, have to laugh
1: right yeah yeah i mean i talk serious a lot of the time right and i mean um <laughs> But in fact, I do. I do enjoy my life, and I do sort of joke around. And in fact, I joked around so much, um, maybe, yeah, that <laughs> I've joked around inappropriately sometimes with the people close to me, right? And and maybe I should pull back a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, there's there there's a wide texture, right, to this project, and I think I hope to my work overall that we can talk serious things, we can talk big things. But then also, you know, you pass the gravy, and then you talk about tennis across the table, right? Like it's not—we don't all live in this ultra-serious mode all the time, yeah. To know when to when to have that conversation, when to to pull back from it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. right. And maybe one more thing about that move—I I think uh, the move does sort of give a relatable example of what powerlessness feels like, right? When you are at the mercy of. Um, you know, another group, another person, society in general, and you must cooperate if you want, <laughs> if you want your stuff, right. But you also realize that huge concessions are being made um, and compromises that don't always sit well with your sense of self. <laughs> but yeah, that sense of powerlessness we can relate to all the stuff you've worked for hanging in the balance in a truck somewhere that you can't track.
0: (laughs) That was Ian Williams. Ian's book, Disorientation, was a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I talk to Alex Olin. Alex's book, We Want What We Want, was a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.